Hey guys, so my guest today was Kevin Parker. To me, this interview today was a very personal and intimate experience because Kevin shared with me his story of how he went through the drug addiction and eventually recovery. To give you a little insight, Kevin started to do drugs when he was 13. And within the next couple of years, the things spiral out of control extremely. Basically, at one point, Kevin got a seizure, all of his organs failed, as well as his nervous system. He lost his ability to talk, to move, and he was lying in coma for, for, for three weeks. All the doctors said that there is literally zero chance that he's going to survive. Eventually, he lost his leg, and the miraculous thing is that not only he survived, today he's thriving. He's a coach for people who are going through their own addictions and recovery at the moment, and he's helping them to, to get to be empowered and to make it back to the, to the successful and, and meaningful life. In the interview, we also talked about, about the victim mindset and how self-pity is making growth so much more difficult and how, how to overcome it. And eventually, Kevin gave some advice on how to deal with people in your environment who might be addicted and who might be in denial. So, enjoy. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Doing fantastic. How about yourself? I'm pretty well, thanks. So, I'm, guys, I'm today here with Kevin Parker. I met Kevin in a Tony Robbins event, which was Tony Robbins event, which was like a three years ago almost, like or four. Wow, time and, flies. Yeah. And since then, Kevin did a lot of work in self-development in his own journey. And in the meantime, he did a very significant transition towards helping others as well. So I was very touched by the personal story of Kevin when I watched some of the videos where, where he was featured. So I wanted to talk with Kevin on, on my podcast. So Kevin, I want to start with, with a very simple question. Can you, can you tell about, about your experience and, and your life? And feel free to make it as long as, you, as, as, as necessary. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to, to, you know, to, getting, to getting to know this in, in detail. Okay, well, growing up, uh, I had a normal childhood. I came from a split family. My mother and father weren't together, but I had two families, so I looked at it as a positive, but I was always trying to fill a void because I never felt like I was enough. I never felt good enough. I was always comparing myself to other people, and I had this void in my heart, and I didn't know how to fill it. So when I came of age, I used to play sports, baseball, football. I was very good but it just wasn't satisfying enough for me and i was introduced to drugs and i started smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol in about seventh grade i used to on the weekend smoke a joint with my friends before i go to the movie theater or like i would cut school very rarely in intermediate school but we'd go hang out in the woods and drink a little bit or smoke a little bit and at that time i was doing great in life i was really good in school, really good at sports. I had the world in the palm of my hands. What's the age of seventh grade? It's like 13, 13, 14? Yeah, it's about 13. Okay. But at this time, it was just a recreational thing. <clears throat> but I just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin, so I was looking for an outlet to get out. So when I got to high school, I developed a bunch of friends and popularity and all of these different aspects, but I was playing sports. And I could not 
work for any money. So I used to smoke marijuana, so I started selling it. And I was making really good money at a really young age. I was young and dumb. So I would smoke marijuana a lot with my friends in school. I would cut school. I would party all the time. And it became a habitual habit. Every single day I would have to smoke or I'd have to drink. And it led to bigger things. Now, at my current status right now, I'm not against weed, marijuana. If you're a responsible adult, you do what you have to do and you handle your business. If you want to smoke, I don't condone it, but we're all adults. But as a kid, it kills your motivation and ambition. And I didn't realize this at the time, how much, <coughs> how much potential I really had. Everybody's seen it around me, but I did not because I had this inferiority complex as a kid. So I was squandering my way, my life away with smoking weed every single day and drinking and just cruising right through school. I was in the honors class and I was doing great, but my addiction and my inhibition to want to grow in any aspect as a kid because I was doing drugs really hindered my growth and my potential. I eventually got kicked out of the honors class. And at this point, I started to spiral out. I started doing more ecstasy and cocaine. <coughs> Excuse me. What was the, what was, what age are we talking about now? Roughly about 16 years old. I see. So I started doing harder drugs. And in high school, in high school, I got so bad that during a baseball game, I had a seizure on the field because I was doing cocaine all night. And the game was in the morning and I woke up and I had to continuously do it because I was jonesing from the addiction. So I winded up having a grand mal seizure on the field. I had to be rushed to the hospital. It was a miracle that I don't have any brain damage from it. But this kind of became my identity. I started doing a lot of drugs and I just got out of high school with it by the skin of my teeth. And I was really smart and really, really talented in sports. I should have went to a state university, maybe even a Oh, Ivy League school. I was I was really intelligent. I was just doing the bare minimum just to get by. I had people doing my homework. I was sleeping during class, getting high, and then I would just wake up and get 100 on the test, and it would balance out my grades. And I thought I was beating the system like I was a hot shot. But little did I know, I was shooting myself in the foot. So I graduated high school, and about six months after I got out of high school, I got onto a head-on collision with a bus, injured my neck and my back. And this was devastating because I was very, very physical. I, I love to play sports, I love to be active, and it really, really took a toll on me physically. So being susceptible to doing drugs, my friends told me, you can just go to the doctor and get a pain script. So I went to a pain management doctor. They quickly, without really doing any background check, just gave me a prescription for painkillers. And I love this because it gave me the pain relief that I needed, and it gave me a killer buzz at the time. So this kept going on for a few months. I was in college, in community college at the time, and I was doing so many pills, I just couldn't focus in class, and I, my grades suffered as well. I ended up dropping out of college and joining the concrete union in New York City, building high-rises in the sky. This job consisted of long days, long nights, many hours, and six, sometimes seven days a week. I was working grueling physical labor all day long, 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week, 
nonstop in the rain, in the sleet, in the snow, in the hail. It didn't matter. We were out in the out in the open. I started upping my dose from the painkillers that I was taking because the ones that I wasn't taking weren't having the same effect as they did when I initially started because you develop a tolerance. So I started at five milligrams like four or five times a day and then I jumped up to 7.5s and then 10s and then 15s and then 30 milligram oxycortones. And by this time I was completely hooked. My doctor looked at me and said, I can't give you these pills anymore. So now I'm addicted. Now I'm not getting them from my doctor. So I'm getting them from the streets. And at the time, I was paying about $10, $12 each. Now they're about $30 each. But at the time, they're about $10, $12 each. And I was spending anywhere from $700 to about $900 a week just to afford my pills, just so I can go to work, just so I can afford my pills. And it was a vicious cycle, and I was completely stuck. I was helpless to my addiction. There was absolutely nothing I could do because if I didn't take them, I would be sick as a dog if I didn't take them. And there was really no other option. I was a slave to my addiction. Did, did, you, did you have any other option to go for work or, or you chose this work out of, out of despair of options? Well, I was a 19, 20, 21 year old kid making $100,000 a year. So without a college education, this was the best job. In my mind, as, an, as, as I'm high on pills, I'm making a lot of money, but in retrospect, I wasn't because I was spending seven, $900 a week on pills. So I was in actuality making anywhere from three to 500 a week. Cause yeah. I would clear about 1200. Yeah. So it just became such a vicious cycle that I was stuck in and I was just working to get my pills so I can go to work. And I was just stuck in this never ending hamster wheel that quickly consumed me without me even realizing I put myself into debt. I ruined every single friendship that I ever had. Every romantic relationship one way or another ended because of my, my, my drug use. It killed my confidence, my self-respect. It made me do st stronger drugs with them like cocaine and um, Xanax and crack and basically anything I get my hands on because I was just filling this void in my heart and I really didn't know how to handle it. And I was super depressed and full of anxiety. I was getting into fights. I was just, in, I was all over the place and I was just a wreck. I winded up losing everything in my life. It got to a point where I lost my car, my job, my apartment, my girlfriend, and every ounce of dignity I had left. I ended up moving back in with my father and he let me stay there for about six months. But in this sucks six month period, He would take videos of me and I'd be like drooling on myself and nodding out. And when I came to and I was a little more sober, my father would be like, look at you, you're high as a kite. I'd be like, nah, I'm not high. I'm just tired. And I would just be in complete denial. But I knew what it was. I was on drugs and I needed help. I just wasn't ready to ask for it or admit it. Came to a point that my family staged an intervention not a professional intervention, which I highly don't suggest because it has negative effects on the situation. I would suggest hiring a professional if you want this to be successful, but they staged an intervention how they seen it on TV. They woke me up in the middle of the morning. They brought me out of my room, started yelling at me, telling me how they feel, how I have to do this. And this is what I did. And you, 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 you pointing their finger in my face. And I got defensive. They told me I had to leave for a, three-year minimum program and I wasn't leaving my girlfriend behind at the time and I wasn't leaving my 
crappy life behind as much as I didn't realize it. They said, either you have two options, either you go away for this extended amount of time, or you need to get out of this house right now. Me being an addict and me being a re rebellious young 20 year old, I was like, the hell with all of you, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of here. Now it was in the middle of November. I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts. I packed a book bag full of sneakers and, and shorts, and I think socks and a toothbrush. And I put it on my back and then I grabbed my safe and I put it on my shoulder and I stormed out the house like a maniac, cursing everybody as I left. I walked about a half a mile, insanely mad, with a safe on my shoulders. I must have looked like a psycho for anybody that was driving by. It was a, it was a sure sight to see. And I walked to my friend's house and I convinced his mother that my father was being unfair and he hated me. He kicked me out of the house. And she loved me because I used to help her with her son because he was well off worse than I was. She thought I was the good one. So I convinced her to let me stay for as long as I needed. She cooked me a bowl of macaroni and cheese that night, and I fell asleep. And this should have been the last meal of my life. Because in the morning, everybody woke up. Well, not me. Everybody else woke up. They found me face first to my vomit, blue, completely unresponsive. They freaked out. They called the ambulance. And this is how messed up it was. My best friend was there and he seen that I was dead on the floor. And he thought in his head, well, I'm gonna miss him, but he's got money in his pockets and he don't need it anymore. So he went in my pockets and took my money. And then he said his goodbyes and they put me in the ambulance. My heart stopped in the ambulance. The emergency team quickly revived me and they got me to the ICU. And I spent three weeks completely unresponsive in a coma fighting for my life. And uh, it was a really bad situation because I had complete multi-organ failure. My liver, my kidney, my lungs, my heart, my brain, everything shut down. I had sepsis of the blood. My liver and kidneys was not filtering my blood. So my blood became toxic to my body. My lungs weren't pumping oxygen through my body. So I had 30% or worse of oxygen to my brain. My blood pressure plummeted so bad that they had to put these machines on to pump the blood from my extremities so my blood wouldn't clot. And everything was a mess. And I had fevers and infections, and I had 105 fever topping out at 108 degrees. My brain was frying. Doctors looked at my parents and said, there's no way that he's going to make it. There's no way. You better just accept the facts that he's going to die and you better stop making arrangements. They were like in complete denial like most parents are, most family is. No way, you don't know my son, you don't know how strong he is. He's gonna get out of this. And the doctors used to look at my parents like they were absolutely out of their mind. Like they just don't realize this kid is dead. We're just keeping him alive until they realize that and then we can let him go. And there was an and a crazy amount of prayer going on. I think there was people praying in all 50 states and different countries. And the power of prayers is so powerful because at my deepest, darkest hour, I actually died three times in the hospital. And the third time, they read my last rites, and everybody quickly started to say their goodbyes. And at this darkest hour of my life, with no warning at all, nothing short of a miracle, I just woke up. And when I woke up, I woke up to my family crying their eyes out. 
I was hooked up to about 10 different machines, tubes in my throat, tubes in my lungs, tubes, a feeding tube, tubes in my genitals. And I was about 100 pounds soaking wet. I couldn't move my body. I couldn't even tell my mother I was sorry. And I just realized at this point that I messed up. And it was my fault. And I opened my mouth to go say it. And then I realized I couldn't say anything. I went to go move my hand. And I realized I couldn't move. I felt like I was paralyzed. And I just remember that I don't know what I did, but this is the worst situation I could ever put myself in. And this has to be a dream because this is, this is just, nobody should go through this. Nobody should put anybody that they loved through this. It took me a few days to realize that this was my reality. And I used to pray to God that if I, I can get out of this, because I would hear things like, he's going to be completely brain dead if he survives. If he survives, he's going to lose all four of his limbs. He's never going to be the son you once knew. You're going to have to feed him, bathe him, change him. And he's just going to be a vegetable. And you're never going to be able to have any kind of relationship with this person. And this, this to me was worse than death. To be a burden on so many people and live in that agony and pain and, and, and uselessness. I was like, if this is the situation, then just kill me now. But please, God, get me out of this. If I get out of this, I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to change my life. and I'm going to turn things around. And this went on for a while. But at one point, the doctor looked at me after about another three or four weeks and he said, I got some good news and I got some bad news. The good news is, I think you're out of the woods. I think you're going to make it. The bad news is, we're going to have to take your leg. So I now have a prosthetic leg, below the knee prosthetic left leg, that I have to put on every morning to remind me of all the the decisions I made and the mistakes I made in my life to remind me how fragile life can be, how important every single second is, how quickly it can be taken away from you. This is my reminder. And at this point, I was thankful. Imagine being thankful that you're losing your leg. I was thankful and I was an athlete. The reason why I was thankful is because I understood what he was saying. I was only losing one leg. I still had one left. I figured all my bad, bad luck must have been in that foot anyway. Chop it off. I don't need it. And this wasn't really set into reality. And I thought it was almost a surreal situation that I was really going to lose my leg. I was because I was all drugged up in the hospital. Until the day the nurses picked up the sheets. And I looked and legitimately seen my leg was missing. And I freaked out. And that's when the pain set in. And the agony. And the stress. And the worry. And the depression realizing that this is my life for the rest of my life. So it was a really difficult situation for me, but that wasn't even the worst of my issues. My right hand was complete drop rest. I was supposed to never be able to move this hand again. I had nerve damage throughout my body. My lungs weren't working on their own. So they had to train my lungs to work by taking me off of oxygen and just giving me just enough percentage of oxygen so I wouldn't die, that my lungs would struggle to breathe for about two or three weeks. So every night when my, when my family left, I felt like I was being waterboarded. I felt like I was suffocating all throughout the night. Eight hours of torture, no sleep, just struggling to breathe for three weeks. It was like hell. And I wouldn't have wished it on my worst enemy. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Not to mention that my liver and kidneys were done. 
they had me on a dialysis. My body was so weak that they couldn't even move my body or else I would have died. <clears throat> so they put me on this 24 hour dialysis to bring back my kidneys. I had bed sores down my back and my butt and my head. I had bald spots all on the back of my head from thrashing, from thrashing back and forth from my amputated leg and all the bed sores that I had. I had an abscess on my buttocks that actually they had to suck out all of the fat and the muscle because it was going to eat my hip bone. Okay. I bled out. I, I, I had a bleeding ulcer. They couldn't find. I actually bled out. My father picked up the sheet one day and I had like two inches of blood. My father didn't lift that sheet. I would have bled out. And nobody would have even knew because I was bleeding through my anus and, and they couldn't figure out what, where this ulcer was coming from. And they had to cauterize it. And I had to get my, I had to get my lungs. I had to get a piece of my lung taken out and then scraped like, like peeling an orange of all the throw up from, I aspirated in seizure, that's why my body shut down, and it solidified in my lungs. They had to literally cut a piece of my lung out and then scrape, scrape, scrape all the hot, solid stuff that was in my lungs. I didn't eat or drink anything for over three months. The first time I tasted Gatorade, I almost had an orgasm. I should have did a Gatorade commercial because I would have made a million dollars on the facial expression from one sip of Gatorade. It was, it was orgasmic. It's the only way I can even describe it. I had to learn how to walk again, talk again, breathe again, eat again, socialize again. I had to learn how to all these different, walk again. I had to learn how to do all these things. I had to learn how to move my hand again. I remember I used to, you ever see the movie Kill Bill when the, the woman is like towing her toes to move because she's paralyzed? Yeah. Well, that's what I was doing. I was looking at my hand and saying, come on, we've been doing this our whole lives. Move. I'm not moving until you move. And when I finally got my finger to move, I was like, that's all I need to know. I know it's physically possible. So for, it took for about nine months for me to be, be able to move my hand and I had complete atrophy. I had no muscle. So I had to like build up the muscle with gravity and then use soda bottles and cans and then work on big weights. And now I almost have all my movement. Like I just can't do cert certain movements completely. I can't do the middle finger or anything like that. But I still can move my hand, which is great. Thank God, because they never thought I would be able to, but it's still pins and needles. Mm. So I have difficulty. And I was a righty, so I had to learn how to do everything with my left hand. Everything. And they told me it was going to take me two years to learn how to walk because I was in such bad shape and I lost so much muscle and I had so many nerve issues. I was like, you know what? Don't tell me what I'm going to do. I'll show you. Within two weeks... I was walking without the walker and within three months I was jogging. And when I first got out of the hospital, I had to be carried up the stairs because I couldn't even, I didn't have enough strength to get up the stairs. And it just showed me that anything is possible if you have the right motivation, if you have the right desire, if you have the right inspiration and vision. If you learn how to hack your reward systems and find ways to overcome situations anything is possible but not to mention although i went through all these physical issues and challenges i could say by far the hardest part of everything was the social and emotional challenges that i had to deal with because when i got out of the hospital i was broken i felt like half the man i used to be literally half the man I lost my leg and I was like, what woman is going to want to be with a man with one leg when there's billions of people running around with two? 
who's going to hire me? I'm a, I'm a laborer. I'm a contractor. Who's going to hire a guy with one leg? I don't have skills. I didn't go to college. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? I'm going to, I'm, I've been addicted to drugs for so long. How am I going to get off these drugs? I didn't speak to anybody for four months. I lost all social skills. My dignity and self-respect and confidence were nilsh. I had none. I didn't know what to do. The day that I got out of the hospital, and I was so excited to spend some time with my girlfriend, she broke up with me the day that I got home from the hospital. We're laying in bed and she broke up with me. And all I wanted to do was have an intimate day with her. And it was a nightmare. And which I don't, I don't blame her for doing it. I'm glad that she stuck through it, but it was dramatizing because I thought I had that when I came home and I did it. But I had two options. I had two options. I could have either rolled over and died and wallowed in self-pity, poor me, had a pity party, or used all these trials and tribulations and challenges as rocket fuel to ignite a passion in me and an inspiration and motivation like I've never seen before. And I chose the latter. I decided to make a list of all the things that I couldn't do, that I thought I wasn't going to be able to do, my limitations. And I sectioned them off in specific categories and, and least likely to do and more challenging and three months, six months, year. And I made all of these things and I made this huge list. And systematically, I checked off every single one. And I realized that if you could turn your biggest weakness into your biggest strength, you are unstoppable. Nobody can stop you. You just have to switch your perception and your paradigm. I think Wayne Dyer said this. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And that's 100% true. If I looked at myself as a cripple or disabled, I would have been disabled. But I look at myself as a one-legged warrior. I inspire people. I motivate. I push the limitations of life. I skydive. I cliff jump. I work out. I do exercises. I can do a mean two-step with one foot. I want a sexy leg contest with a robot leg. Like, there's literally nothing that I can't do. I've done, I won a Ninja Warrior contest in the DR that nobody got to do in the pool, but I did it with one leg. And it was just so inspiring for everybody in the resort. You can literally do anything that you put your mind to. if You just frame it in the right way. From this point on, I've read well over 100 self-development books. I've gotten every certification from empowerment coach to recovery coach to drug interventionist. I'm a trainer. I'm, I teach recovery coaching and life coaching. I'm, I'm a trainer. I'm a public speaker. I'm a best-selling author. I wrote, I co-authored a book. Um, it was for marketing, but it's a best-selling author. And in about six months, I'm coming out with my story and all the takeaways and life lessons that I learned. It's called The True Warrior Within, Transforming Challenges into a Life of Empowerment. And let me tell you, there's so much in that book and there's so many experiences because what I've learned is people learn more through experiences than when you tell them something. The reason why I'm so successful these days, the reason why I've been able to accomplish things is because I've learned a thousand ways not to do it before I found the right way to do it. It was a process of elimination for me. And this is how I really led my life for a long time. But in retrospect, I would have saved myself a lot of time by just modeling other people that did it. <laughs> modeling other people that went through it so that's why i share my story that's why i go that's why i'm sharing my story here today and i really just love connecting with people 
I love helping people in recovery. I love, love helping people that are dealing with traumas or challenges that they just don't feel like they can surpass. And I'm here to tell you that you could do anything with the right guidance, with the right support system, with the right people around you and the right mentality. There is literally nothing out of your reach. Wow. Thank you so much, Kevin, for sharing. I, I had teary eyes multiple times and I want to say big thank you for going that deep and for sharing all the details because I guess it, it's not easy to, you know, because when, when you share it, part of you have, has to go through the, through the thing again, right? So I really appreciate that. And if I could save one life, one family from going through what I went through or what I put my family through, then everything that I ever went through was all worth it. And I've experienced this time and time again. So my life is a success, whether I made a dollar in my life or living on the streets or, you know, I help a million people. If I mm -hmm. saved that one person, which I have, my life was a success and it was, and it had meaning and purpose. So I'm just grateful to be alive, being able to hear, talk to you and talk to your audience and hopefully add value and some kind of um, perspective on something today. How much time ago was this? I went, I overdosed and ended up in the hospital 11, 22, 11. So that was about a little over nine years ago, uh, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. It's going to be nine years um, in, in November. Mm -hmm. I have a few, few notes from, from what you were talking and some questions. I think it's very interesting how, how what tends to happen a lot when you think a certain way, you literally material you literally create the reality that's going to fit your fit your thoughts and i think that's something that you said in the beginning that you had this inferiority complex based on based on the surroundings and the circumstances how you grew up and it just went on and on and on to the point that it materialized through drugs and through actually having a life that looked like the way you described so i think it's it's extremely important to be aware of the thoughts and how the thoughts because the thoughts are literally creating your reality. You are doing it consciously or unconsciously, unconsciously all the time with your thoughts. And I think this is, a, this is an amazing example how, how it can first go extremely, extremely bad, as you described, but as well how it can change within few, within few days or within, within few weeks to completely shift and to radically change, change the reality that you are living in. So what I, what I tell people is, you know, a lot of people judge people that are addicts, drug addicts and everything like that. And I, and I, and I just like to say that don't judge somebody because they're an addict, because believe it or not, you're an addict too. You know, you may not be addicted to drugs and alcohol, but you're addicted to something, whether it be shopping, whether it be binge watching that show, whether it be gambling, whether it be sex, whether it be anything, we are all addicts of pleasure. That's how we govern our lives. We're all addicts of pleasure. We're always seeking pleasure and trying to avoid pain. And that's why people do drugs because they're trying to avoid the pain of whatever their traumas are, whether they don't feel enough or they don't feel loved or they don't feel comfortable in their own skin. And they're trying to obtain pleasure. You may do it otherwise. You may eat Snickers bars or eat a big bowl of ice cream. That's how you're avoiding your pain by, by overeating and the pleasure that you get from eating that meal or whether it be sex, or whether it be watching a binge show, avoiding life by just watching shows and you get pleasure from the entertainment. We're all looking, we're all addicts of pleasure. We just may have different flavors of it. 
So if you put things into that perspective, anybody, anybody can get addicted to a drug or have this traumatic experience that I had. You know, I know doctors, I know lawyers, I know sports players, I know the most successful people you know, believe it or not, have some kind of really debilitating addiction. And it's running rampant through all of our lives. But we need to find the fulfillment in our hearts, whether it be emotionally or spiritually, and have faith in something bigger than ourselves and just have something to fill that void in our lives because when you when you don't when you have a void you're going to fill it with something and if it's and if you don't have anything healthy to fill it with whether it be exercising or eating healthy or a purpose in life you're going to fill it with crap you're going to fill it with drugs and alcohol and sex and gambling and impulsive behaviors and all of these different aspects if you can't find a healthy conduit to fill those voids that every single one of us have in our hearts then you're going to be broken and damaged so don't judge somebody from their uh, specific flavor of poison because I'm sure everybody listening has something that they shouldn't be doing that they're doing. I absolutely agree. And also, I want to add two things. One is that I believe that every person in any <coughs> moment of life is doing the best they can with the resources available. So even, so even drugs at the, at the moment, in the beginning, seem like the best choice available. Because if the person had a better choice, they would obviously go for it. But if they don't, the only thing that remains as paradoxically as it sounds is drugs. So like there is, there is zero blaming. And the second thing is that I think there is a very specific kind of pleasure that doesn't seem like pleasure because it's kind of hidden. And that's the pleasure of self-pity that victims make. And this is extremely toxic because it's, it's, it's very barely visible and it doesn't feel like pleasure. I mean, it feels like pleasure, but we like as a victims we allow ourselves to believe that no no like oh poor me poor me but this actually feels good that's why we're doing it that's why we're addicted to it and i think like it's 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 a nice way you put it through through the through addiction to pleasure and yeah i think it's extremely important to be aware of this yeah so pity for other people can be productive because you may want to reach out and empathize with them and help them out but if you're having pity for yourself you're just, you're just self-destructing. There's really nothing that can come out of that that's beneficial. Like you said, you're getting the pleasure of feeling bad for yourself. You're getting addicted to that feeling. But that feeling is so destructive and so malicious to what you're trying to accomplish because it's not growing you. It's not adding value. It's not giving you love and connection with anybody else. People are just looking at you like, you know, that doesn't add to anything. So I think uh, talking about pity is a really is a really serious addiction for somebody to have because it's it's a spiral downward effect in your life and there's and the problem with that is the only person that can fix it is you and if you're in that if you're in that uh pity party mentality it's a snowball effect because you get you get you get you feel pity and then you feel bad for yourself and then you feel even worse because things are getting worse and you get worse and you're just feeding into it and it's getting worse and worse and worse so that's something that you should really be aware of not falling into is pitying it for yourself yeah when it comes to pity how did you overcome this feeling when you when you finally decide to go out of pity and you start being productive and constructive and you do stuff i have an experience that what comes up is this is this like self-inflicted ty tyranny that's how i would call it like like 
like I do work, but I'm asking myself questions like, oh, who am I kidding? Like, I know this is not going to work. Like, oh, I, I know I don't have all it takes to, to go through and, and to, to succeed. This is, I believe this is the hardest part about getting out of the victim mentality and self-pity. How, how did you overcome this, if you, if you have that experience? So it's a lot, a lot of how I deal with my empowerment coach clients. When people are not feeling like enough, I like to push them centimeters outside of their comfort zone. If your comfort zone is this big, do something right here. Something that's very easily attainable and accomplishable. And when you accomplish it, you grow a little bit. And now you're this big. And then you try to aim for something a centimeter higher than what you think you're capable of. Then you go this big. Then you grow this big. And now, before you know it, if you do one thing a day to grow yourself to a, a, a bigger comfort circle, you started the week like this, you ended the week like this. You're not the same person as you were seven days ago. So what it's about is attaining little teeny goals that are achievable and growing your confidence and belief in yourself. Because you can't pity yourself if you just consistently win all the time. Yeah. If you're constantly winning and achieving goals, you can't, feel, you can't be like, oh, I can't do it. Yeah, you can. You've been doing it. You've been doing it all week. You've been doing it all month. You've been doing it all year. Make sure that you're accomplishing goals that are attainable and pushing yourself just centimeters out of your comfort zone because that's where all true growth comes from is a few centimeters out of your comfort zone. I wouldn't say, like, if I'm here, like, all right, tomorrow I'm going to become president of the United States because that's just so unfathomable. It's just never going to happen, and you're going to feel bad about it when you fail. It becomes overwhelming. If I'm like, all right, I could do 20 push-ups, and I'm like, all right, tomorrow I'm going to do 21. And I push myself to do 21 push-ups. I'm like, now nah, I'm, I'm a 21 push-up man. You know, and then, then two days later, I'd be like, you know what? I think I'm a 22 push-up guy. And I go, and I get to 21, and I'm shaking, and I'm like, oh, I could do this last one. I just need to press it out and give it everything I got. And then you get it. Even if you fail, and you go halfway. Well, you did 21 and a half. You're this much closer to your goal. Tomorrow you could do 22. Setting goals that are achievable and gaining your confidence and momentum to achieve anything is the way that you get out of pity. You start basically building your resume, your self-resume to yourself. You're feeling pitiful about yourself that you're pathetic? Okay, maybe you are pathetic at the moment. So do something 1% over pathetic. And if you do 1% over pathetic for 100 days, you're twice the man that you were three months ago. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, absolutely. And there is an amazing, there's an amazing book on this. It's called The Slight Edge. It, it describes exactly what you're talking about. That little 1% growth every day is causing 3,700% growth over a year because it compounds every day. And with this principle, you, you, can, you can grow extremely fast over a medium-long time frame without doing an extreme effort. Yes. So that's, that's exactly it. Um, I want to come back to, to one thing you were talking about during sharing your story, and that's, that's your experience with coma. You had multiple near-death experiences, and, or maybe we can go like even further with, with like the near-death experiences when it comes to coma. Did you have any, like, is there anything extraordinary, or I, I, I don't want to, Put it like in a I experienced while I was in a coma. Yeah, because like like people tend to people tend to uh, to to describe these states in a very interesting way, and they say that they have like a lot of awakening 
happens during this period and like like the, the perception of what what life is and what the reality is changes massively because of these experiences so i wanted to ask you if you had any experience with this well i actually put this in my book but i'll i'll, I'll give you a sneak peek of really what happens because uh that's a very good question i was in a dream state when i was in a coma i remember being on a beautiful white sand beach with turquoise water with my best friend samantha and we're just sitting on this beautiful beach with our toes in the sand and life is good the breeze is hitting me in the face i remember i remember it like i remember smelling the ocean and i remember thinking wow life couldn't get any better than this and then i look over to me and i see like this palm tree looking thing with like a mango type uh fruit on it and i shimmied up the tree and i grabbed the and i grabbed the fruit and i shook it off and i slid down the tree and I'm like devouring this huge, huge fruit. And I'm like dripping down my face. I'm just like eating this thing like it was the most delicious thing in the whole world. Must be the forbidden fruit or I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it was a dumb mistake because right after that, I just looked over to my friend and there was two surfboards in those sand. And we both looked at each other. And we grabbed the surfboards and we ran out into the water and we're swimming out into the water. And we get out, pedal out all the way far, 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 far. And then we get out there and we're sitting on the board. And then I look back to see the to see the, the the island and the island isn't there anymore. And then I turn around and my friend isn't there anymore. And I'm just floating in the middle of the ocean by myself. And then I started feeling paralyzed and I and I and I like lost it and I like fell onto the surfboard and I'm looking up into the sky. And I'm just like surrendering because I'm just like, I'm screwed. I'm just sitting on a surfboard. I'm in the middle of the ocean. I don't know where anything is. I can't move. I'm just submitting to, 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 the, to, to this ocean. It's going to take me wherever it may take me. And I remember looking up at the sky and seeing like a, almost a movie reel of all of the things that I did in my life. It was like in fast forward, but in slow motion at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was kind of hard to explain, but like I was just seeing my life flash before my eyes, all the things, all the experiences that I had, the mistakes that I made, the, the good things that I did. And it was just like this role, this film role of all the things that I've experienced in my life. And I don't know how long this went on. And I was just like, at this point, I just surrendered. I was like, this is what it is. This ocean's going to take me wherever it takes me. And that's it. I'm, I'm just completely sub submitting myself to the, to the water. And I remember just thinking this and all of a sudden I started hearing voices and I was like, what is that? And I must've like washed onto the, to the, to the ocean, to the, to the beach. And these indigenous people picked, picked me up on my surfboard and started running me over to this, like this, like straw hut and they go into the hut and I can't really make out anybody's faces or what they're saying. It sounded like a tongue I didn't understand, but they strapped me to the shiny, metal table and they strapped me down at the table and there was a big light above my head and the peripheral was completely black and dark and I couldn't see it but I can hear these voices and they were speaking a language I couldn't understand and I was just staring at this light and for some reason staring at this light was comforting because everything else was dark so I would just focus on the light and I heard all these these languages and I didn't know what was going on except I heard this one song that I never heard before it was, there was a man right here, his name was Paul Revere, can do, can do. Now I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm on a tropical island, I don't understand what anybody else is saying, why do I understand this song? Why is this song bringing me so much comfort? And why are they playing 
playing this in this third world country hospital or whatever this is. That's so weird. But I was just loving this song. It brought me so much comfort and, and love in my heart. And I didn't understand why. And I would sit there and I'm like, man, I just miss my family. I wish, I just wish I could see my family one more time. And I was like praying and really trying to figure out how I was going to get out of the situation because I didn't know where I was. And as I'm thinking about how much I miss my family and listen to the song, slowly the, the light above my head started dimming, dimming out and the peripheral that was pitch black started fading up into light and they both mixed together and then boom, I was in the hospital and my family was all around me. And that's how I woke up from the, uh, from the coma. I see. Did you get an experience uh, or a chance to interpret the song or, or does the song? Yeah. Exist? So, uh, so, so after I got out of the hospital, I was able to speak about four months later, they asked me the same question you asked me and I told them. And I, and I started singing that song and my mother started crying. She was like, that was me singing to you every single morning. She was like, I was an emotional wreck. I couldn't even think of a song. But for some reason, that song stuck in my head. And, and, and I don't even know. It's from some old movie or something like that, from like the 70s or something. I never even seen the movie. So yeah, I would sing that to you every single morning. Because the wow. doctor told me to speak to you while you were in a coma because you understand the voice. Wow. Yeah. So it somehow blends, like even though you're in coma, you can actually hear and, and, and perceive what's happening around you through some, some bent form of reality that's happening only like within you. Yeah, well, at least that was my experience. Did you, could you say that you had a choice to leave or to stay? And you made the conscious choice to stay? Because like, based on what you said, it, it, it was like the, the chances were extremely low, so. I mean, it depends. I've had different interpretations of this. Uh, throughout my life because I've been on a spiritual path since I've gotten out of this because I've had some really godly experiences in that hospital and saving my life and there should have been no reason that I did. Um, but, I mean, I kind of interpreted as, as a newfound Christian. I, I was into spirituality, new age spirituality, Buddhism, and I, I've studied all of these different things. And when I came to what, I, what I've come to my last interpretation is that when i ate that that fruit was the forbidden fruit that they talk about in adam and eve in the story of thing uh basically stating that i was a sinner and i was doing things in my life that i shouldn't have been doing that's why i went out into the water for judgment when i went and read uh watched that sto that story reel of everything that was being showed about all the things that i did wrong in my life and all of the things and i think i had that option potentially when I was looking at the light and the darkness in that room and I was listening and honing on to my mother's voice that I did not want to leave earth or, or, or life. But that's just an interpretation. I don't really know how true it is or really what, what to really believe. But, um, yeah, yeah uh, I know, I know that my whole, my whole life flashed before my eyes when I was watching my life flash before my eyes in, in the sky yeah. And, you know, being able to hear my mother and being in that light and darkness area was a little scary because it probably could have went both ways. If I would have just gave up and just focused on the dark, maybe I would have never came back. Yeah. It's, inter it's, it's super interesting. I, right now I'm reading a book called Journey of Souls. And there's a guy who is a hypnotherapist who is doing a regression therapy with their clients. And they describe something very similar that he, he's, he's able to go into, into hypnotic states where people go actually in their past lives and they can talk about their experiences, how they died and what happened after that, like how they soul traveled 
the spirit world and how it stayed in, in the earth. And it's, it's questionable, like it's, it's, it's basically impossible to really determine if it's, if it's true, or, true or not, if he was hallucinating and wrote it from this place or if he actually had those experiences. But he described something very similar, that people, have, that people go through a place where they actually see their whole life, how, how it passed by, and they can see from a third person perspective, neutrally, what they did right and what they did wrong. So that when they go to another incarnation in the next life, they can actually see what they can do better and what they can learn. So from this perspective, you can also say that you, that you, that, that the part of you knew that if you decided to leave, you would have to come back in another incarnation and go through the same thing again. So it's kind of more practical to come back and, and fix it in this life. But, but I mean, it's just another. Yeah, that's, 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 that can certainly potentially be a, um, interpretation. And that was kind of what, at, at one point of my spiritual practice that I kind of believed in an aspect, you know, I did, I did certainly believed in the circle of life and reincarnation and, and all these things and soul ties and, and figuring out where you were going to end up and what dimension and what life you were going to be in. And you were judging yourself in the same kind of way that you were saying. So yeah, that could have been potentially the translation of, of what went down, you know, nobody will really know. Um, yeah. I'm kind of far removed from it now. It's been eight years, so I can't really. But I do remember some very, very vivid memories of it. You know, the mm. being on the beach, be laying on that surfboard in the ocean, being strapped to that table, the song. I remember all these things like like it was yesterday. Mm. But the whole feeling and emotion of it, exactly what was really, really going on. Like, because I'm sure when I was in that state, I knew what was going on. And then when I came back to 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 this consciousness. You know a little bit of it was lost hmm. so that actual feeling of what was really going on i'm sure while i was going through it i knew exactly what was going on you know <laughs> like like for sure knew like oh this is what's going on but then when yeah. i woke up and time passed and everything like that i probably lost the translation a little bit so yeah you know it's you like, never know it's like it. no no one will ever find out or everyone will eventually find out like you can yeah this is a question of perspective i wanted to ask you about like a, a practical thing I think many, many people have some, someone in their close environment who is struggling with addiction and who are sort of in the position of your parents back in time. As a person who went through all that and who is helping other people to, to get through their addictions, what would be your recommendation how to, how to treat this when, people, when, when these people are in complete denial and they, they just completely resist the reality as it is? And, and, they, and their parents or relatives wants to help them. What would be, what would be your recommendation? Or what's the, what's the, the, the first aid? Well, it, it, the thing about addiction and recovery, it's a fully customizable path. Every single situation, client, family member, they all have individual needs and wants and desires and beliefs of what's going on. So it's really hard to give you a cookie cutter answer. But if you're saying that they're on in denial, the person that's going through the addiction, they're in denial and they don't believe it and they actually have a serious problem, the absolute only thing to do is perform an intervention, a professional intervention, not by somebody, by you, by you watch it on the Dr. Drew show, uh, the celebrity addiction, Dr. Drew. Yeah, the celebrity addiction guy. Because it doesn't work like that. <laughs> and your family members don't know you as Joe Schmo. They don't know you as an interventionist or as a professional. They just know you as their uncle or their father or their mother. And they know how to manipulate you and 
tug at your heartstrings and really figure out how to navigate through that and figure out the best way because addicts are master manipulators and they're also in denial themselves and they just do not want help. So what you would need to do is find a good certified interventionist that is willing to take your case, give them all the background, find a really good facility that meets their needs because not just anyone, there's some terrible facilities out there that are just out there for your money. But there's also some really, really good ones. And it's difficult to know unless you're in the field to find out exactly what that is. And then you need to do your due diligence on how to go about approaching this person, what their triggers are, who the enablers are in the family, because when anytime there's an addict, there's an even sicker person enabling that person to use drugs. Like a codependent, basically. Yeah, codependent family, like the mother that, that, that pick, cleans up the mess after their son, every single thing that they do. Or the father that pays and bails them out every time he gets arrested or does something wrong. You know, there needs to be hard love. There needs to be a, a, a strong line drawn in the sand. Like either you're going to get help or you're not going to have our support. And you can't half, half ass anything in this field. You have to be very, very stern and serious about what you do and toe the line. But it takes, it takes some intervening to do that because you can't do that on your own. It's very, very difficult. But yeah, the first step is to get people into a program. Now, the thing about recovery centers, facilitation for recovery facilities, is people think somebody goes to a rehab and up, they're, they're, they're cured. The fact of the matter is 96% of the people that go to drug rehabs relapse afterwards. And that's just the bottom line. Because the fact of the matter, the real work starts when they come home to their own environment. 96% 96%. Because most of the time when people go to rehabs, they're not set in by a professional interventionist. They don't get the right rehab facility for their need. They're just sent to because they a friend recommended them to go there or their coverage covers that or whatever the case may be. They've seen it on TV, Malibu's, Malibu, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like a resort and there's no clinical or this, or it's, or it's all clinical and no, no, no comfort or they don't have the aftercare is where it's at. The reason why you go to a rehab facility is to get that moment of clarity, to get that 30, 60, 90 days of sobriety. So somebody can infiltrate your way of thinking and change your paint, your, 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 your thought patterns and your and your and your your wiring of your brain how you think and, and the neurotransmissions between your neurotransmitters your brain is fried when you do drugs it it it, it hacks into your endorphin system your serotonin system it just takes over all of these things and you're getting giving it artificial thick artificial happy chemicals and your body stops making them so the only way that your body knows how to get them is to do drugs yeah so when you take them away, you go through anxiety, you go through depression, you go through super emotional swings, your body isn't the same, you're tired, you're lazy, your, your, your brain is unfocused. And when you get out of these facilities, you go back into the old environment that you are and the only patterns that you know are off, oh, I do drugs, I feel normal. Off, oh, I go to this place, I could do drugs, I'll be okay. You yeah. need to disrupt these patterns and create new patterns for success and that may and, that, and, and that's why i think recovery coaching is so powerful because it's a multifaceted, customizable approach to addiction you know you go it as a physical mental emotional spiritual health everything like there's just a complete overhaul of your life to conduce that's conducive for success 
And that's different for every single person. So you can't just like have a cheat sheet and be like, yeah, follow this and you're going to do yeah. great because people have different triggers, different issues, different psychological issues, different needs, different malnutritions, different amino acids that they're lacking, you know, health benefits, health wise, exercise, social environments, career wise, relationships. There's just so many aspects. And when something goes bad in, in addiction or recovery, they just, they go, they immediately go into autopilot and they go into what they know is go into those regular patterns that I know and take that drug or sniff that line or yeah. take that drink and that'll fix it. But you have to hack into these, into these processes and change them. Yeah. And we talk, they talk a lot about that in Tony Robbins as well as pattern interruption, pattern yeah. interruption until you rewire your brain for a successful pattern. Cause mm. that, cause think new neurons that fire together, wire together. You know, if you're constantly doing the same thing over and over, you make a super highway of that habit or that behavior or that thought. Yeah, it's basically a conditioned response. Yes. Nothing about the conditioned response. Yeah, it's all it, behavioral psychology. Yeah. So basically, for the people who go out of rehab, when they face this uncertainty of, of, of their environment, they go back to the bad, even though they know it's bad, because bad feels better than uncertain. Like the uncertainty is, is this thing that, that, this, that makes them go back to their old behavior because that's, because that's at least familiar, right? Like, and then we say we're all pleasure addicts. Yeah. We find more pleasure in doing the things that we're comfortable with, even though we don't know, even though we know they're bad for us, than the pain of the uncertainty. Yeah. The pain of growth and the pain of change. And that's what basically it boils down to. That's why when you get out, even if you don't go to a rehab facility and you cut addiction, you should get into an, an AA group, an NA group, an IOP, intensive outpatient program. So you surround yourself with people that are going to be conducive to your um, situation. I see. Okay, uh, Kevin, one last question before we wrap up. I wanted to ask you, how about, how about your, the healing of your body? Because you talked about how, how damaged it was when you went through the seizure. And it's been nine years after the incident. How, how, do, how does your body feel right now when it comes to the regeneration of the organs and, and blood? Well, my organs are 100% back to normal because we regenerate. Uh, as far as my nerve damage, it's still very severe. I, I can't walk barefoot with the foot that I have left. I get really, really bad phantom pain in the limb that's missing, which is I get sensations and itching and burning and electrical impulses in the limb that I no longer have. I have two herniated discs in my neck, two herniated discs in my back. I have sciatic, I have nerve damage. I have all these different aspects, but I feel better than I was than when I was just had neck and back injuries and I was taking painkillers because I've learned how to cope with these things and deal with these things through homeopathic holistic practices, whether it be exercise and stretching and a super healthy diet. I mean, it's not always healthy. I eat some crap. I eat some fried foods and, you know, all that stuff. But I predominantly make sure that I get at least one or two really healthy meals in. And then I'll have a cheat meal. And then I'll, I drink a lot of water. I drink uh, electrolyzed ionized water. I drink, I try to stay away from acidic foods. Uh, I stretch a lot. I work out a lot. I, I, I just, and I keep my mind sharp. So I take care of myself opposed to drugs taking care of me because when you take painkillers, it's just like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. Yeah. You know, it looks good. It feels good for the moment. But as soon as that Band-Aid comes off, you still have a broken leg. You yeah. know? <laughs> so, it blows uh, my mind. 
the, the, the regeneration, the uh, regeneration capacity of the body just blows my mind. If, if you say that your organs are 100, in 100% shape, after what you described, after the seizure and, and after that much time of taking drugs, I mean, I'm in awe from, from the capacity of the body. Yeah, it's, it's completely incredible. In fact, all of our, basically every single cell in our body gets, uh, dies and regenerates within like, I think like 180 days. Almost every single cell in our body is uh, renewed and, 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 and regenerated uh, because all of our cells are constantly dying through oxidation, mm. the oxidation process and through, through regeneration processes, uh, our, our new cells are being made all day long. That's why our skin flakes, that's why our nails grow, that's why our hair falls out. It's, it's just, that's the way that it goes. Uh, and if you give your body, if you give your body healthy things to replenish the old, worn out, dying cells, then your body will create healthier cells to replace them. Yeah. And yeah, we're basically snakes letting go of the, of the, of the old yeah. skin all the time. That's exactly what we are. <laughs> you know, but you want to give your body the best possible tools to make the best possible body. That's, yeah. why, you're, that's, why, you're, that's why your diet is so important because you are what you eat. You are what you drink. So if you're eating crap, you're going to have a crappy body when it comes back. Mm. If you're eating good superfoods, you're going to be a superman when you, when you mm -hmm. regenerate. You know? So it's, it's all on you. Okay. Kevin, thank you very much for, for your time. Before, before we close it, I wanted to ask you if people want to follow you or get in touch with you, how, how can they find you? Uh, that's a great question. Well, you can follow me on, on Facebook. Uh, my name is Kevin Parker. Uh, Instagram, it's the one-legged warrior, the true one-legged warrior, uh, underscores underneath each word, between each word. Um, or you can reach me at my website at truewarriorsuccess.com. And my email is kevin at truewarriorsuccess.com. I'll happily uh, talk to you and see what we can do. Maybe I can help you out, add value in your life or work together or really anything. I mean, uh, I, I'd love to speak at your events. Uh, I'd love to, for you to read my book. I'd love to stay in contact with all the audience if we can. And uh, I hope you got something out of this today because I always do when I share my story. I, I got a lot of, from our conversation today. So I want to say thank you again, Kevin. So I, wish you, I wish you a lot of success in your efforts and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.